1951, near Gunnister, Shetland, two men digging peat made a grisly discovery, the remains of a body in a shallow grave. As you might expect, the police were called and the site became a crime scene. The remains were taken to Lerwick, the capital, for further examination. Now, so far, this sounds like standard police detective work, except for what happened next. You see, the body wasn't actually a body at all. It was a full set of woolen clothing that had once contained a body, and that clothing was 250 years old. In this episode, we hear how a team of archaeologists, textile historians, and wool experts came together to unravel the secrets of Gunnister Man. Who was he? Why was he in such a remote spot? And what had happened to him there? I'm Alison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. Before we even start, I need to tell you a little bit about bog bodies. Northern Europe is full of peat bogs. These are moors and wetlands where over millennia, moss and plants and other vegetable matter have decayed into a kind of spongy soil. If you garden, you've probably used peat moss in your planting beds. When they found the remains, those two men had been digging peat for fuel. The condition in these bogs, an acidic, low-oxygen environment, kind of on the chilly side— means that bodies buried in them can be incredibly well-preserved, kind of pickled. Some bog bodies are thousands of years old. Now, this wasn't the case with Gunnister Man. Of the man himself, only a few bone fragments remained. Finger and toenails, skull fragments, some curly brown hair. His clothing, however, was in excellent condition. And that clothing is at the heart of today's mystery. Gunnister Man was found lying on his back, arms neatly at his side. He wore a wool shirt and breeches, and a pair of long-knitted stockings, very heavily mended. Over this, he had a rather elegant wool coat with belt sleeves and deep cuffs, lots of buttons and a full skirt. But on top of that, he wore a short, shabby jacket, like something a workman would wear. He also had a knitted wool cap and long wool gloves, a leather belt, and a knitted purse that held a few coins and a silk ribbon. The coins were Dutch and Swedish and dated from the late 1600s. Submerged in peat for several centuries, all the clothing was stained a dark khaki brown. He had several items around him. There was a second wool hat that was folded around a horn spoon. He had a short quill of some kind and a small cow horn with a plug, like a mini powder horn. And at the time, people thought it might have held snuff. And then finally, there was a wooden bucket about the size of a lunch pail and two pieces of wood that seem to have been lashed together in some way. I know this is a lot, but try to remember all of these things, because each of them tells a story. When someone finds a body, it's usually a gruesome news item. The site was clearly a burial, but an archaeologist working in Shetland was called in, and he reassured the authorities that this was not a recent death. And at that point, Gunnister Man became this sort of celebrity. Everyone in Shetland wanted to see him. Shetland resident Oliver Henry recalls his uncle telling him about the discovery. What actually took place with, with the remains of the Gunnister man, and this is, um, as I was told by my late uncle, quite a bit older as me, when he was a young teenager still at high school on the island of Borough, his whole class was taken in to Larwick Police Station 
and they were taken to the police cells and they were shown what he said was the clothing. There was no visible body there, but um, they were fascinated with this. There the students got to look at the clothing and remains of Gunnister Man, a kind of morbid field trip. And they weren't the only ones. Throughout Shetland, people were fascinated. And, of course, there was a lot of speculation as to what happened to him. Some said he met his end through foul means, but there was no evidence of his clothes being uh, damaged by a sword or whatever. Really, there was so little there that they couldn't come up with a, a reason. Gunnister Man even had his own fangirls. Here's Dr. Carol Christensen, curator at the Shetland Museum and Archives in Lerwick. Some of the pieces of clothing went to a few houses in the neighboring village for people to look at. And even then, some some of the ladies in the houses were madly sort of recreating the knitting. So there was quite a lot of local interest, and it was quite sensational. Dr. Christensen was an archaeologist when an opportunity presented itself that would put her in intimate contact with Gunnister Man for the next several years. The Shetland Museum at that time was old, small, and in bad repair. So there was a drive to create a new museum on Lerwick's waterfront. And part of that opening was to showcase Shetland's heritage in a way we hadn't been able to do before. Shetland has a rich textile history going back 2,500 years, and that continues today. The new museum needed a curator with a deep knowledge of the subject, and Dr. Christensen's specialty was textiles, so she landed the job. It started with a bang. So one of my first tasks, really quite big tasks, was to investigate the possibility of recreating the Gunnister Man costume for our museum because the original garments and all the artifacts associated with him are with the National Museum in Edinburgh. When he was discovered in 1951, there was no museum in Shetland. And so there was no place for those artifacts to go other than Edinburgh. And they've been there ever since. And Edinburgh is a long way from Shetland. The Shetland Islands make up a small archipelago poised between Scotland and Norway, and they straddle both the Atlantic and the North Sea. When I visited there in 2017, it took a 12-hour boat ride from Aberdeen just to get there. There's about 100 or so islands, but only 16 are inhabited. I'm telling you all of this because I want to give you a sense of just how remote Shetland is. Remote or no, Shetland had been a bustling trade hub for long stretches on and off through its history. The coins in Gunnister Man's purse suggest he was buried around 1700, and Shetland's economy at that time would have been largely fishing and wool. Most of its trade partners were the Hanseatic League, and this was a confederation of German cities and guilds who pretty much controlled trade in the region at that time. But you also would have had Dutch merchant ships and ships from the Scottish mainland, maybe even ships from England. The capital, Lerwick, would have been a busy polyglot port town, full of merchants and deal-making. But Lerwick wasn't the only center of commerce at that time. Dotted around the Shetland coastline are ruins of buildings that we call bods, which are trading booths, essentially. And they, they're they all over the place. And they were where boats would come in and offload goods from different parts of Europe and and people would go down and trade. It was near one of these bods in northwest Shetland on Gunnister Vaux where the body was found. Is it possible that this remote location played some part in his death? 
Dr. Christensen wanted the new museum to highlight Shetland's unique cultural history and really focus on the textiles that had been its backbone for millennia. And in Gunnister Man, with his 22 pieces of clothing and random fabric bits, she had the perfect mascot. But she also had this incredible challenge, because she couldn't just bring Gunnister Man up from Edinburgh. But if clothes make the man, she was going to make the clothes. And her idea was so ambitious, it bordered on crazy. Rather than make something that just looked like Gunnister Man and put him on display, she wanted to completely reconstruct his clothing as it would have originally been made. From raw fleece, from the right sheep, to the last button, patch, and pocket on that fancy suit. And she had to do this by working backward, from pieces of fabric that had been submerged in a murky bog for over 250 years. Obviously, this was not a task for one woman. And she freely admits she didn't have the skills to actually recreate historical replicas. So she assembled a team of experts. I knew who to call on. Her name is Lena Hammerlund, and she lives in Gothenburg in Sweden. And she, what she does for a living is recreate archaeological textiles. So she was the first port of call for me. But also she had a good friend who I also knew who did historic costume tailoring and sewing and design. And he also was an expert on early looms. And his name was Martin Sizuk. And so together, me and Lena and Martin sort of formed this little working group. So we gained permission from the National Museum to look at the textiles. So we went down there, we met, they came over from Sweden and we met in Edinburgh and we spent a couple of days just analyzing what was before us. And that was really the nitty gritty of it because we had to record as much as we possibly could. Those few days with the clothing were all the time they would have. Martin basically focused on the cut of the clothing because he was essentially trying to make sewing patterns out of what was there because that was going to be his role. Lena and I focused on the quality of the wool, not so much color, but we were looking at fiber quality. We were looking at how smooth the yarns were. The team's task, it was like writing a symphony, note perfect, after only hearing it once. But Dr. Christensen and the others felt it would be well worth all that effort. We were trying to do the most accurate reconstruction that we possibly could, not because we wanted it to look so accurate, which we did, of course, but because we knew that in doing that, we would learn about how these clothes were made and why there were so many different clothes and why there were so many different kinds of textiles. There were 22 different fabrics that had to be reconstructed, and that was being reconstructed from scratch. Now, some of them were knitted and some were were woven. So we had a lot of work to do. I spoke with Elizabeth Johnston, the Shetland spinner and fiber historian who spun and knit the replicas of Gunnister Man's gloves. She told me a little about how rigorous the process was. The knitted items needed to be knitted exactly as the originals were. When everything was made, they had to be distressed with the cuts, tears and worn patches to look exactly like the original pieces. It was a huge task. I got involved with the gloves because they posed a problem. And examining the original pieces, they could, as I say, they could look at one side, turn it off and look at the other. But they couldn't pick it up and turn it outside in. That's what you needed to do 
So the museum asked me if I could try to figure it out. Working with fleece that Dr. Christensen had given her, Elizabeth spun yarn that seemed to match the original. And then came the actual knitting. The way that I figured out the design, I had photographs and I had measurements and the original analysis. From the photographs, I could count the stitches in a row and I started from there. It's a long process. I think I spun about six samples. And the team would follow that same arduous process again, 21 more times. The Gunnister Project was an extraordinary academic and artisanal undertaking. And in recreating Gunnister Man, Dr. Christensen's dream team also hoped to solve the mystery of his origins and maybe even his final fate. Learn how they did it and the surprising things they discovered after this break. When we left off, Dr. Christensen and her team were just getting ready to find answers about the Gunnister Man. The one question everyone asked, of course, was, how did he die? Because when you hear about some lonely traveler found in a shallow grave in an isolated place, you immediately suppose foul play. But Gunnister Man, he didn't have any sign of that. His clothes were intact, there were no cuts or tears to indicate a knife wound or a pistol shot. His purse was still in his coat and still held a few coins. But there were some weird things to note right from the get-go. As we said, his body was laid out very neatly in what seems to have been a deliberate and respectful burial. But this was in the middle of nowhere, and there's no marker or stone of any kind. Considering how undisturbed his remains were, it's reasonable to assume that any such marker would have remained in place. Was he formally buried or just hidden? That knitted cap of his with the folded brim, the initial report described two holes and a mark pressed into the fabric like a brooch of some kind had been pinned there. But there was no brooch on the body when they discovered it. His metal belt buckle had survived, so where was the jewelry? His right glove is off and by his left side. Why would he remove his glove right before his death? Did he mean to do something in the same way you might take off your glove to rummage in your backpack or purse? Or did someone else remove it after his death? And why? Dr. Christensen described her first impression, looking at Gunnister Man's clothing. The National Museum had done a lovely job of, of laying all the textiles out so we could move around tables and examine them closely. So what we did when we first entered that textile conservation studio room was we, we just took a good look at everything because we wanted to get a sense of it. And, you know, rather than sort of going in to look at detail first, we just sort of stood back and took it in. You know, you're trying to get a sense of this person's last day or last hours, the last time that they have been in those clothes alive. And, you know, by doing that, you kind of have a sense of what their situation was. First of all, we didn't see any marks on the clothing to suggest that he'd been stabbed in the back or something. There was nothing like that. But the way the clothes were sort of (laughs) arranged by him, we had a sense that he was probably really cold. Now, Shetland is just outside the Arctic Circle, so cold weather should not be that surprising. And in 1700, Europe was still experiencing what became known as the Little Ice Age. This was a period of cooling that took place over several centuries. During this time, you had heavier snowfalls, sea ice expanded, you had entire fleets that could be locked into a harbor. 
Gunnister Man's clothes don't make a whole lot of sense at first. He had on this quite stylish coat. It was sort of tight-fitting at the bodice, but then it had a really wide, what you would call a skirt to it, which again came down to about his mid-thigh or just above his knees. And then over this, he had a jacket, and that was really, really tattered, whereas the suit was almost like new. Those wide cuffs of his were folded down right over his gloves. His suit had over 20 buttons, but a few of them were missing. He'd use cords to tie those empty buttonholes shut. And the coat had several false pockets, basically decorative slits. And those also had been sewn shut, but with this really roughly sewn thread that didn't match the coat at all. And he'd use that similar thread to create this sort of garter belt for his stockings. His stockings were very long, as they would typically have been in that period. And what he had done is he'd sewn the top of his stockings to the bottom of the skirt so that the stockings wouldn't fall down, but also possibly to keep that wide skirt from flapping open. He was basically trying to stitch himself into his clothes to keep anything from opening, because those false pockets, for example, if they were gaping open, then rain and wind could go down there, which would then get his breeches wet. So he seemed to have just tried to secure his clothing together as much as possible. And that gave us the impression that this man was really, really cold and he was struggling. Mystery solved? Well, not exactly. We can make a pretty good guess as to how he died. But what was a once well-dressed, now really underdressed man doing in the middle of nowhere in the freezing cold and storm? Tying his coat together and sewing his pockets shut to keep warm in a storm might have made sense in that immediate situation. But his outer clothing is heavily mended as well, and in a way that raises further questions. He had these long brown stockings, but the feet of the stockings weren't there anymore. He had worn those through. The soles of his stockings were patched by basically taking another sock, folding it in half, and then sewing it to the bottom. This clumsy mending is another clue, though, because it's clear that each stocking had been mended at different times and with different materials. Gunnister Man wasn't a traveler who had one really bad day trip. His clothing suggests someone on the road a lot, wearing out his garments and replacing or mending them with whatever was at hand. In other words, he couldn't afford new clothes. And that brings us to that missing brooch. Remember that? The mark on his hat brim, like something had once been pinned there? Well, we came to the conclusion that it wasn't a brooch there. In that brim, there are two holes. But when we started to look at costume from that period, we noticed that it was very common for men to put things in their caps. What we think was probably in the cap was a bone needle because he had with him pieces of wool that had been roughly spun and he had also a little knitted patch. And it may, it may have been used as a patch because we found knitted patches on his clothing. So he seemed to have the sort of rudiments of a sewing kit with him, essentially. But he had no needle. Dr. Christensen goes on to explain how that acidic peat bog would have eroded a bone or metal needle until there was nothing left. So the needle might have been bone, but it could have been metal as well. And that's what we think is that 
he had a needle in his cap. And I mean, the holes are the size that you would have for a bone or metal needle. The image of Gunnister Man is changing from a dandy to a man kind of down on his luck, just scraping by. But what about that horn he had? If you recall, Gunnister Man had a small cow's horn with a plug at the end. He also had a short quill. We had two lines of inquiry about that. One was that the horn and the quill were used to store and to use snuff, which was a very common thing in that period. And there is a Scottish painting of a woman from that same period showing how she's using snuff with a quill because you, similar to the way people would sniff cocaine, you you put it up your nose and you use a quill to do that. The image of Gunnister Man cutting and snorting a line of snuff was so distracting that I needed a moment to process during our interview. More importantly, I'd assume snuff was kind of a luxury good, and it seemed at odds with someone who had to patch his socks all the time. But the other thing is that could have been that it was a quill and a horn that had ink in it. And so we asked the National Museum to test whether there was ink or there was snuff in there. And they came back and said it was ink. So that makes me think that he was some kind of a, a merchant's clerk or some something like that. He was a trader or he was working for somebody where he had to keep records of something. And maybe these two little pieces of wood were some sort of portable writing desk. So at this point, things are starting to come together a little more. Gunnister Man isn't just some snuff-snorting decadent caught in a bad storm. He's most likely a clerk. Not terribly well-paid, scraping by, and perhaps very far from home. So where was he from? To answer that, we need to look at his clothes again, and this time at the wool fiber in them. Shetland wool is very high quality, and it's made to resist Shetland weather. It's warm, it's light, it's soft, and it's water-resistant. So what was the wool in Gunnister Man's clothes? As textile people, our aim was to see if we could recreate this out of Shetland wool, if all of it could be done out of Shetland wool. And we came to the conclusion that most of it could have been, but the two caps, no. You know, we... We wanted to understand the wool quality because we thought also that would help us understand whether or not he was from here. And so I went to the wool broker, Jameson and Smith, and I've known Oliver for many, many years. And, and so I went in and said, you know, this is what we want to do. And I need wool from you. The Oliver she refers to is Oliver Henry, whom you heard at the very beginning of this episode. For over 50 years, he sorted and graded thousands of fleeces a year for Shetland wool brokers, Jameson and Smith. The man knows his wool. So our role in recreating the Gunnister man at Jameson and Smith started as early as 2004. Carol Christensen, she came and asked me to sample the wool and the clothing of the Gunnister man. She gave me the pictures. And she said she would like to recreate it as near as possible, not by commercial means, but by how it would have been done back in the day. So what we were looking for was not a really soft Shetland as, as we know it, not the really fine, kindly Shetland. What we were looking for was, it was like a, a very short staple and a lot coarser than, than our fine Shetland. In other words, a coarse type of Shetland wool might work, but then Oliver spotted something in the photos. Kemp, 
That's a coarse white hair that just won't take dye. And I've never really seen Cam uh, in, in Shetland sheet. Maybe the coarser Scandinavian type, but again, uh, I can't really say that. Here's Dr. Christensen again. My feeling is, and I think Lena and Martin agreed with me, was that we think that his clothing came from different places. And I think that his suit, the coat and the breeches, I think they look so like what men from the Netherlands were, were wearing. Having a Dutch person in Shetland at that time was extremely typical. There were Dutch and German people trading and everything. So that wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. And also his his coat was quite fashionable. And even though it was made out of sort of rough wool in a way, it was cut and designed to be of the fashion. And that gives you the impression that he was possibly from an urban area. So I actually think the the suit was was Dutch. As a side note that Percy was wearing, it's the earliest example of Fair Isle knitting, a very famous Shetland tradition. But that's a different story. For Gunnister Man, it was probably something he just picked up. It feels like we're getting a little closer to knowing who Gunnister Man was. The haphazard mix of clothing he wears suggests a city boy, not someone prepared for the weather conditions he faced outside the city, someone who tried to protect himself as best he could. So he augmented his new suit with secondhand goods bought or bartered or maybe filched. And as his clothing wore out, he clumsily replaced it with whatever random scraps he could find. I personally think he's from somewhere else. I don't think he was a Shetlander. I think he was somebody traveling. I think he he was wearing way the wrong kind of clothing. I mean, to have that suit with the flapping skirt and all the rest of it, he just was not prepared to be in Shetland when he was. And this brings us to the final question. Why was Gunnister Man found where he was? Do you remember those bods or trading posts that I brought up earlier? Those would be a reasonable destination for a clerk. These places were quite busy. And, you know, the Dutch and the Germans knew where all these places were, and it was quite regular trade going on. So I think that he was involved in that sort of level of trade. And there is actually a booth at Gunnister near there, but they were all over the place. So he could have been working for some sort of merchant or trying to get to a boat to leave again. But he seemed like he wasn't prepared for the weather and the the landscape that he was in. This is another sign he wasn't from Shetland. Gunnister is 30 miles from Lerwick over rough country. His possessions are what you would pack for a day trip. Lunch pail, few business supplies, maybe a ribbon to spruce up with once he arrived and got to work. But he didn't account for the terrain or the weather. I think of a relatively young man, and he was young, slim built, there was no gray in his hair, having no idea how long the journey would take or how changeable the weather could be. When that storm hit, he desperately tried tying his clothes more tightly to his body to keep out the wind and the wet, and he finally succumbed to the cold and the snow alone. Depending on his condition, it was probably easier to bury him where he was found than transport him to a distant churchyard. That glove lying by his side? Maybe he'd removed it and was fumbling with his woolen ties as hypothermia set in. Maybe whoever found him pulled his glove off by mistake as he buried him. And the lack of marker might simply indicate he was a nameless stranger, a foreigner, in a place where everyone knew everyone. 
and so he never got that final courtesy. The Gunnister Man Project wasn't complete when the Shetland Museum opened in 2007. In fact, it wouldn't finish until 2009. But for the project unveiling, Carol was able to arrange for a very special visitor to the museum, the original Gunnister Man himself. There was a lot of buzz in Shetland about the new museum, and people knew we were working on this project. So it seemed fitting that when we decided to unveil the reconstruction, that we also had in the same room, the originals. And of course, Martin and Lena and I had seen them in Edinburgh, but nobody had seen them in Shetland since 1951. So it was really great to have in our gallery the originals and to know they had come back to Shetland even for a brief period. And what was also fantastic for the three of us was that we it was the first time we could see how our reconstructions fitted the originals. I remember there was one point at which the jacket, that outer piece of clothing that was so badly worn and patched, that was sort of laid out and laid open so we could see the the original patches. And we brought over the one that Lena had made. And the linings were so similar. It was just unbelievable how well she recreated that just by hand spinning and, and weaving. So I feel like we did Gunnister Man justice because we did recreate, to the best of our abilities, that whole suit of clothing. And we could finally see that when we saw the originals next to the reconstruction. We will never know who he really was. And each person I interviewed had a completely different idea. But what's striking about Gunnister Man is that he was just an ordinary guy. Most of what we know from archaeology is about kings, lords, important people who had elaborate burials and fancy objects and just a fair amount of stuff. Gunnister Man, he's more like the guy you see on the bus every morning and forget about as soon as he gets off. Dr. Christensen's reconstruction was more than a recreation of clothing. She reconstructed his humanity as well. Though there was no actual body, all that spinning and weaving and knitting helped create a flesh-and-blood person. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information and photos of Gunnister Man in our show notes page. Just look for the link in the episode description. You can listen to more episodes of Fiber Nation at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please be sure to rate us and leave a review. Fiber Nation is written and produced by me, Alison Korleski, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. 